Hello, and welcome to the Natural Selection. This week's theme is Beatles. Hey guys, welcome back to the Natural Selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Nick. Hello. Naomi. Hello. And I'm the other Nick. Hello. Uh, we... <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Naomi, will you introduce the podcast to our listeners this week? Yeah, so we are the Natural Selection. We are a group of taxonomists who want to bring our passion for nature into the wild. So each week we meet up and we talk about the natural world. In the first part, we discuss nature news and interesting research that has happened in the last week. In the second part, we talk about a different theme each week and how it relates to animals and plants around the world. This week's theme is beetles. Beetles. I love a beetle, but we know someone in the group who really loves beetles, and it's not Naomi. Who is it? I I have to assume it's the person who studied beetles. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Yeah, are you excited for this week's episode, Nick? Um, it's rare that I feel more confident in my claims than you two. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you should ever feel that way. Um, or I think I can speak on behalf of Naomi, at least, who's always flying by the seat of her pants. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. No, and, no. Me, and me as well. But I have to admit, this week, I feel a little out of my depth. I feel like you're going to get a taste of what it's like to be me, because when I say something about mammals and you guys have blank faces, I'm never sure whether that's you guys looking at each other being like, this is embarrassing for him, or just like, <laughs> I didn't know that. So I feel like, yeah, you're going to get, when you say something, you're going to be like, did Nick just not know that? Or have I just, have I just claimed something <laughs> entirely wrong? Like, all beetles are made of chocolate. You can eat some beetles. They put the red ones in Smarties. So anything you want to talk about that happened this week to either of you? Something exciting? Can I talk about something that happened last week? Of course. So you remember we were talking about no, those... The- the ship has sailed on that, Nick, last week. <laughs> <laughs> Got to move on. It's over. Okay, I'll allow it. Um, do you remember we were talking about that insect we saw on the floor? Oh, yeah, the ones that, that swarm on tree trunks. Yeah, I found out what it was. Go Well, it, we decided it was a true bug, right? One of the hemiptera? Yeah, it was a hemiptera, and I looked into it, and it's actually... Uh, I'm going to, again, my Greek is so terrible, but it's Pyrochorus apterus, which is a fire bug. Ah, cool. And They're the black and red ones. Yes, and ah. they are not native to the UK, which is why I've not seen them before, but apparently they're quite common, and they go all the way to Australia. But that's what we were looking at. We were looking at uh, fire bugs. Ah, cool. Cool. And they are, they are swarming, so they're a bit like ladybirds. You know how sometimes like ladybirds, you get loaded of them. They do that as well, where there'll suddenly be like loads of them in a mound. So up to like, they think definitely tens, maybe hundreds of them will suddenly appear in one spot. I've seen lots, for sure. Hmm. Naomi, anything exciting happen with nature to you this week? No, not really. Um, Very, yeah, very normal week this week. No exciting animal occurrences. I was in the park this morning. That was fun. Um, We saw some koi fish in the pond 
and then some water hens. I think that was a baby water hen or like a juvenile one, very cute looking. Oh, and I... some squirrels, a lot of squirrels cacheting things or like at least looks like they might be storing stuff. A lot of rustling around in leaves. Getting ready Sounds for suspicious. Awesome. Yeah. 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 No, it's like if you stop and look at them for like a second, they will come over to you and they're like, hey, you got any food? <laughs> I am never confident enough to say I always confuse more hens with coots. Me too. And I know it's one of them, but it's a 50-50 shot every single time. And I always check yeah. afterwards. I know, I'm the same. The coots are the ones with the white beaks, and the more hens are the ones with the, the reddy beaks. You said that with the confidence. I say I that with <laughs> very, like, I was, confidence. I was like 51-49 there on that one, and it was 51 <laughs> in favor of Naomi's decision, so yeah. I'm going to say, yes, also that. Is true. We guarantee it, and if anyone reads otherwise, that source is entirely <laughs> wrong. Yes. <laughs> I think there is a slight issue that other people have different names for them that are like slightly different, like Stephen or yeah, exactly, you know, like the like some people call the moorhens coots and uh, <laughs> others call call the coots uh, moorhens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can get a little confusing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, um, should we do some nature news? Yeah. What? Yeah. Naomi, um, what have you found for us this week? Yeah, so I found a really interesting piece of news this week. So my piece of nature news was about honeybees this week. So this piece was published in Cell Press um, in the middle of September this year. And scientists have been able to scent train honeybees to boost sunflower production, seed production. So what they were able to do is they were able to give train these bees with a mimic of a sunflower scent and then a food reward. Once the bees that had this um, scent marker and food reward increased their foraging to sunflowers nearby. And then they found that this actually boosted sunflower production, I think, by up to 50%. So this is something really interesting for um, pollinating crops in the future and how they may be able to target uh, certain crops with honeybees, training them to know that sunflowers offer a food reward and if there's sunflowers nearby or anything in particular. I think there were also talk of using it for maybe almonds or other food crops. Almonds, that's nuts. Yeah. That um that really sounds like it has some pretty serious agricultural and economic impact. Definitely. It's it's really interesting. Um it's something that I wasn't really aware that was possible, but yeah, it it's it's cool. What's what scent I did think... they actually use the scent of a sunflower or did they use the scent of something else? They used an artificial scent that I think, so the the paper itself was very stats heavy, so I found it a little hard to kind of unravel all of it. But my understanding of it was that they used a mimic of a sunflower scent. So they used the scent that was most like what represented sunflower scent to bees. 
but okay. I think sunflowers are have like a they have like a range of scents um, within the sunflowers. So I think they just use one that sort of represented sunflowers. Okay, so basically they would like lay down a trail for the bees to follow, and after like a little while, basically the bees follow that scent, and eventually like, oh, here comes the sunflower. So they what eat. they actually what they actually did was they basically gave them food with this sunflower scent, um, and then those bees sent out foragers who found the sunflowers and then came back, did their waggle dance to tell everyone else where the sunflowers were, and then they they went out and found the sunflowers and increased pollination. Awesome. Yeah. So we get more flowers and more honey. Yeah, yep. Um, it's good that we started off with a win-win there because I'm about to bring you guys a lose-lose. I, I know that I had a, early on in the, the, the podcast episodes a reputation for bringing some of the more negative news to the show, and I've been holding off on the negative news. I've let others, I've, you know, I've let the two of you hold that baton for a little while, but I'm back with a vengeance. Because this week, the news that I have uh, is from an article, the headline of which is World Fails to Meet a Single Target to Stop Destruction of Nature, uh, which is pretty much the grimmest thing that I can imagine reading read the environment uh, ever. But uh, it comes from a collaboration between the Zoological Society of London and the World Wildlife Foundation who released a study uh, in the last couple of weeks that basically talks about biodiversity loss across the world and a conference that was held in 2010, a decade ago, called the Aichi Biodiversity Conference. or It was a strategic plan for biodiversity made in 2010, and it was meant to cover the last 10 years. And they had five different strategic goals across sort of the realm of Agriculture, global policy, and environmental environmental policy for climate change and sustainability changes that should happen on a local to global scale. And that within each strategic plan, they had different targets to be met in various ways. For example, for strategic goal A, which addresses the underlying causes of biodiversity loss, um, one of the targets is People should be made aware of the values of biodiversity and the steps they can take to conserve it and use it sustainably with a certain uh, list of points that can be sort of checked off. Like this has been done, this has been done, this has been done. Each of the, so each of the strategic plans has a series of, of four to five targets, which is a total of about 25 targets, none of which were met. So this is pretty grim news. I don't really know where you can go from having a global conference to decide on how to stop the destruction of nature in the next 10 years and then not doing any of it. Like, doing it again seems kind of pointless, no? Yeah. You say you want a revolution, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. I guess we'll have to revolt. Yeah. I'm already <laughs> revolting, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not great. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little like shocked actually. I suppose I'm not hugely surprised, but at the same time, like I can't believe that nothing was met. Yeah. Is it sad enough that I entirely because I feel can. like these sort of plans are usually, yeah, yeah. I feel like these plans are usually on the conservative side as well. Like in terms that I mean, they're usually not as good as they could be as well to you know they're but yeah oh 
problem is saving nature didn't make anyone no money. <laughs> well, and it takes money from people who have lots of money. Yeah. Or stops giving them more money. What you guys haven't considered is all of the mining we could be doing there. <laughs> Will no one think of the miners? <laughs> Christ. Or at least the people who own the mines. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to be like, well, actually, like, it's not the, necessarily the miners' fault. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. If, for example, did you see in um, Australia there was a mining company that blew up like an Aboriginal holy site? Even having been told not to do it, they just did it. Oh and my they were god! Like, oh my god! I'm so sorry. We're so sorry. Oh oh oh! Sorry. Yeah. Whoopsie Daisy. Christ. Oh gosh. Wow. Um. So. Okay. Um. Something. Uh, Nick, you have something funny for us? Brilliant. <laughs> no pressure there right well yeah uh it's been a good week for science because this is the week that the ig Nobel awards are awarded yes so the ig Nobel awards obviously named for the um Nobel awards uh are a group of awards that go to science that at first makes you laugh but then makes you think so they are studies which really draw the eye for perhaps the wrong reason, even if they might have some legitimate sort of science behind them. I like to call them the they did what awards. <laughs> well, you're like these because I know for a fact you haven't seen them this year, Nick. I haven't. They just came out and I haven't looked yet. So the one for acoustics that is awarded to a team of scientists for inducing a female Chinese alligator to bellow in an airtight chamber filled with a helium enriched air. What did that sound like? Uh, slightly higher. <laughs> That's a little anticlimactic, but the visual is enough. Um, but they were able to use that to deduce that alligators and crocodiles bellow um, to show their size, especially the size of their head. Oh. Huh. That's what it was actually quite useful. Uh, entomology, my favorite, was awarded mm -hmm. to an American researcher who collected evidence that many entomologists are afraid of spiders, which are not insects. Huh. I believe that. And also, that's why I did why. <laughs> <laughs> well, as for why, you'll like this one, because the award for physics was awarded to a team that discovers what happens to the shape of a living earthworm when one vibrates the earthworm at a high frequency. Oh, no. What? what happened to the earthworm? I read this paper. I don't know. <laughs> it's a physics paper, and I was looking at it being like, I really want to be able to say I'm together. I think it was fine, but it just made certain shapes, but I didn't really understand it. The, I, what I took away from it is they dipped it in alcohol first to in incapacitate it so it was easier to handle. Oh. <laughs> These are physicists. Yeah. Nothing against physicists. You know, they just... It's a little abstracted. Yeah. But the winners, uh, they each won $10 trillion, <laughs> uh, which were Zimbabwean dollars oh, uh, from yes. 2009, which is equivalent to the price of a loaf of bread. Amazing. <laughs> At first blush, these awards remind me of the Raspberry I... Awards, which are like the Oscars, but they're awarded for 
bad performances and bad movies, the worst of the worst. But then when you really think about it, this research is actually probably decent and good research, but it just seems so out there. It's so fun. I remember one of my favorite previous winners was a study that found out that hamsters can suffer from jet lag. I'm not surprised, but it's good to know, I guess, that other mammals experience circadian rhythms in the same way that we do. Exactly. Once you put it that way, there's a study into the circadian rhythms of other animals and animals who are related to, then it's actually quite interesting. But yeah, the idea that a hamster gets jet lag is quite fun. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Well, that did lighten it up a, bit, a little bit. So thanks, Nick, for bringing that in. Shall we then finish up the news and get on with our theme, Beatles? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. We'll be right back after this break. Well, listeners, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that little break. And we're going to get going now with our theme, the lovely Beatles. Uh, it just so happens that one of our one of our company this week is a Beatle expert. So we're looking forward to hearing <laughs> all the rights and wrongs about Beatles from uh, one of us today. I, I won't give it away in case he feels a little bit of pressure, but um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. So uh, what makes a Beatle a Beatle, Nick? Well, there's like a few little things. I mean, it's obviously an insect. I think everyone agrees that they know a beetle is an insect. But the main thing which sets the beetles apart from the other insects, so what sets it apart is their elytra, which is their first set of wings. So obviously insects generally have two pairs of wings, which is not the case for flies, which have um, one pair of wings, uh, and they're called the diptera for that reason. But... The coleoptera, they have a hard shell as their first set of wings, which is the elytra. And this can go over their wings and protect them. It's more obvious in the big ones when you see them fly. So if you ever see a stag beetle fly, you can see their elytra uh, out on the side, not really doing much in the way of flying. But when they fold back up, it offers an extra layer of protection to these. Cool. So this is the defining feature of the beetle group? Yeah, but other than that, they're like an exceptionally diverse group. I mean, the defining feature, is that what makes them a beetle? But what makes beetles so fascinating is how many of them there really are. So we often think of diversity, but the numbers for beetles is absolutely staggering. All in all, Kew Gardens, they did a study into um, the species of vascular plants, and they estimate that there are about 391,000 species of vascular plants currently known to science. Um, about 94% of these plants are flowering plants. The estimate for the number of beetles is 400,000. So there are actually more beetles than there are vascular plants. And if you think of the diversity of all the plants that you see as you walk around, because they're much more obvious to us, think how different all these different plants are, you will, uh, you will start to see the true diversity of beetles. And even the most diverse order of plants is the Malpighialis. And there's 16,000 uh, species of those plants. So 16,000 is the most diverse species, uh, diverse order of plants. Again, for beetles, it's 400,000. But if you're interested, the, the Malpighialis, they contain things like castor beans, willow trees and passion fruit. So they're exceptionally diverse in themselves. But yeah, beetles are crazy. They, I mean, there's so many different ones that we could name. Uh, there's some very famous ones like, uh, and there's some very important ones economically. So you're talking about sort of bees in being used for farming. 
Ladybirds are very, very popular with farmers because they eat aphids. Aphids, aphids are, are, are not beetles. They're a, they're a hemiptera. Famously, ladybirds prey on them. So for things like the fruits we grow, like strawberries, often farmers will want ladybirds in their fields. So basically, if we want good strawberries, we should just sort of have ladybirds in strawberry fields forever. But it's not just, uh, basically, why are they so diverse then? So what's the reason? Are they, are they evolving better, more than others? It appears there was a massive radiation of them when angiosperms came about, that suddenly these beetles became more diverse. But what scientists are starting to realize is that it's not necessarily they're really, really good at speciating. It's they're really, really good at not going extinct. Hmm. <laughs> ah, hmm. So they did uh, measure this, and they were looking at groups such as clams, corals, and vertebrates. Beetles have amongst the lowest family level extinction rates ever calculated. So in the subgroup Polyphaga, um, zero families have gone extinct in their evolutionary history. What? Yeah. <laughs> when you are looking at like mammals, the history of the mammal tree, it's like, it, it's the other way around. It's like one family in this group of 200 survived to the present day. <laughs> or like it's just crazy it's the opposite and they speculate why this might be the case so one of the main speculations was just their flexible diet which is one of our benefits as well but it, particularly in the polyphagia which they can eat algae plants and even animals so hmm. wow nick the beetles that's crazy i didn't know that i'm still blown away by that that's crazy but they're even even now with like climate change, there's evidence that they might actually benefit from that in some regions. So there was a study in Norway that was noticing that the spruce forests were getting warmer. And what they noticed is there was an invasion of beetles as it got warmer. And they were they were um so yeah, they were the boring beetles. So yeah, as the world gets warmer, like even like Norwegian wood isn't safe. Yeah, that's something I really grew to appreciate when I was looking up beetles was just how truly impressive their vast numbers but just like their sheer diversity is is incredible like it's like 40% of all described insects are beetles and that's that's a quarter of all known animal life forms are beetles so one in four animals is a beetle yeah wow Mm. and there were four Uh, beetles so, uh, statistically, one of them's a, an actual beetle. <laughs> do um do I have to have we said this quote before? The the creator, if he exists, has an inordinate fondness for beetles. It's one of the many things I've got in common with them. <laughs> but they they're actually in pretty much every environment. They don't exist in the polar regions. And they don't exist in the sea, but they exist quite happily in land, uh, elevated in wood, underground, even in water. So you get things like um, there was the Thermonectus uh, mamaratus, which is from America. It's sort of a diving beetle with very distinctive sort of colored spots. So it's really easy to spot in the water because it's basically this like just yellow submarine just sort of flowing through. Mm-hmm. Those actually, they have uh, hairs right near the spiracles that they do oxygen diffusion with. And the hairs keep water out of the spiracles or spiracles so that they can stay underwater without having being essentially drowning. But they also, like all beetles, have elytra. So they can fly, swim, and walk on land. I think they're really cool. 
is it feels. That's like a superhero. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's also there are birds that can fly and they can dive, but they can't really stay underwater for that long. And fine they're not fish, that good at walking. And they're not that good at walking. But beetles, they're just like change. You know, doing all the stuff. The transformer. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, one of my favorite big ones I found. So you might have heard of the Hercules beetle. That's the longest beetle. Often people say it's like the strongest insect. Uh, the strongest animal proportionally by size, yes. So it's enormous. Do you guys know how big <laughs> the Hercules beetle is? I want to say the size of my hand, but it's probably bigger. I don't know how big Nick's hand is, so this is difficult for me. Naomi, uh, what, what, what would you compare it to? A rhinoceros beetle? I, I don't know. Size-wise, I'm not sure. But something I did learn about them is that the University of Nebraska have done some research to implant electrodes in them and fit radio receivers so that they basically turn them into remote-controlled beetles. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah, so they might be, like, aid... They may aid in, like, surveillance or search and rescue missions. Search and rescue missions. (laughs) Those are two really different, and uh, uh, (laughs) one of those is very sinister, and the other one is a little bit unbelievable. Yeah, I know. I feel like, yeah, the second one is like, well, just, this is why we're doing this. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. What, what are they going to rescue? Like, if you're trapped on a mountain and they send a beetle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that beetle will scour the mountain in about 30 days. <laughs> um, I like assume it's... it's so that they can find you, like, as, like, a little, with, like, a little cat. I don't know. I'm not sure. They just turn them into cyborgs. Uh. <laughs> I'll tell you how useless that might be, because the Hercules beetle is the longest beetle. Uh, it's only 17 centimetres long. That's less than the size of my hand. Yeah. Um, but to give you an idea of how long that is, if you've got sort of like a penny laying on the floor, it's about eight pennies all in a row. And that is the length of a Hercules beetle. Like, pretty big about insects like that's size yeah because it's not like a stick insect which is skinny all the way like it's a chunky chunky insect it's weighty yeah Yeah. is that including is that the one with the super long that's why it's so long it's got a long nose it's so long it's got a long nose pinocchio Hmm. (laughs) they're the ones that grab the other ones and throw them from the trees that they're in right no that's monkeys oh mm, people um (laughs) kids on a playground set uh so (laughs) I want to play the role of literary correspondent for you guys again this week. Um, I found a really delightful article by the famous entomologist Bill Hamilton, who recently passed away, and he published an article called My Intended Burial and Why. And before you ask, sadly, his intended burial was not carried out as he describes it in this article. Um, He was buried near his home in England and... um, not the way he describes. But I just want to read you a section that's about the scarab, one of a type with a scarab family of beetles, um, that, that describes some of their beautiful morphology and strange feeding behavior in a really sort of elegant, poetic, and scientific way that combines those things. So I'll just read a little bit of this to you, and then we can uh, sit with the scarab beetle for a little while. 
he describes himself, uh, he's doing research in, in Brazil, and he says, you'll find me prone on the forest floor in Brazil in the dusk, closely watching, closely watching something on the forest floor. What, am I, what have I found here? Well, the find of the moment seems to be just a very dead white chicken. What am I doing? You will see in a moment. A heaving has started somewhere beneath the breast feathers of the chicken, as if suddenly tired of being dead, it had started to breathe. This movement, however, works its way under the feathers towards the crop. A mound grows bulbous, the feathers spread out. Suddenly bursting from a ragged hole at the base of the chicken's neck comes something shiny and green, grotesque, curvaceous, and messy. A huge, rotund insect, big as a golf ball, sparkling its vivid cuticle from under the blood and flesh, and worse muck that beslobber its surface, sparkling, in fact, in the most glorious gold, yellow, and green, as shown in the light of my torch. It has a long black horn sweeping back from across a th from its head across a thorax, scooped as concave as most beetles have them convex, a full bulldozer blade of its hard body, a glossy metallic chitin warped as if into a fantasy sculpture by Henry Moore. As he pushes swiftly down through the feathers to the ground, his messy covering seems to slip lightly from his shoulders, like the disguise slipping from a king who has pretended to be a workman. In a moment, at the touch of the feathers he is scrambling over, most of him has become as resplendent and perfect as a cedonine rose chafer daintily climbing from a flower. There is, however, one thing that perhaps spoils its effect and makes him a workman still, although in fact it also makes him far more interesting in my eyes because such a male attribute is so rare. This is the big pink ball, a good human forkful of chicken flesh, half his size that he's still carrying in his arms. Where is he taking it? I hold my breath and hardly notice the first drops of the heavy evening storm that are beginning to thump on my back. It's not often I get a chance to see all this, and usually the transactions about to be described take place in darkness beneath the chicken. It goes on for a while in this route, and then describes how the male and the female meet and feed one another, and then occasionally how whole groups will come together as a family unit and drag the carcass all whole underground. Uh, and it's really, I think... The language and his love for beetles is so clear, but it also describes these morpho morphological features and behavioral characteristics in a way that is, I think, bordering on the scientific. It's really an interesting way of seeing the beetle. Yeah, it's clearly something in the way he moves, like in the chicken that really caught his attention. Yeah, that the heaving, the breathing. Yeah. The story itself, I, I, I guess I'll give it away, but um, because it's still quite a, it's a fun read if you look it up. It's called My Intended Burial and Why, because at the very end of it, he describes how he would love to be put out in the forest in Brazil and eaten by these, they're called um, coprophagous scarab beetles, uh, and then carried off into the Brazilian forest and under the night sky by these beetles. That's cool. I mean, it's always nice to hear the continuing story of Bungalow Bill, but, uh, yeah, Please. it's sad, yes. sad he didn't get the ending he wanted. I know, I know. Yeah, listeners, I've just seen a face of a man who, 
had it up to here with Beatle names. <laughs> that was so descriptive. I'm still like reeling a little from the. It's vivid. It's, <laughs> it's incredibly vivid, but weirdly beautiful. Do you guys wow. have a plan for your funeral? I would like I... to be buried in a with no casket in the ground. Hmm. What about you, Naomi? Um, I think I'd like to be cremated um, and then scattered somewhere. Just somewhere? Yeah, yeah maybe the ocean. I haven't decided yet. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I, well saw... I think that's more of an activity for people, like, after you die. So, like, like obviously I'll give them a suggestion, but I feel like it would be somewhere where they would want to feel connected with me. Hmm. So I would suggest the sea, but, you know... They could pick, like, a beach or somewhere. Yeah. I mean... Although I, apparently people in England have been discouraged from scattering their ashes because it's changing the soil composition in, like, certain cliffs. Yeah. Whoa. That's incredible. Mm. What about you, Nick? Well, I sort of had a plan. I'd quite like to be cremated and shot up in a firework, but I feel like that's kind of a young rock and roll thing. Like, when I'm 64, I'll probably, like, have mellowed a bit and just want to be... <laughs> Scattered. I hope that, to, for anyway. your sake, I hope you live longer than that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it for my sake, not for anyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Nick, yeah, that's so cool. That's such an interesting, I suppose, the role of the beetle and certain insects in that kind of decomposer. I suppose it's something that we don't necessarily think of as being, you know, I guess it's a bit gross in a way because they're they're scavenging or they're eating. But it's it's really important. Like all these insects have this role in like renewing life and putting dead things back into the earth and stuff um, and one beetle in in particular that i think is is a pretty cool example of this is the dung beetle um so it's also a scarab beetle i think the beetles you were talking about nick are scarab beetles are they that come together over meat so yeah the, the dung beetles they they feed on feces as the name would suggest but um there's there's a couple of different groups so some of them roll dung into balls some of them bury the dung where they are um and some of them live in, in, in the dung um but they're really important for as i mentioned they're really important for recycling nutrients and basically they're very important in the nutrient cycle so they've been used in places uh, such as like south africa in unused mines they've been really important in getting those that soil and and that earth reusable uh, they live in many different habitats so they live in grasslands and um, yeah and and they search for dung using their sensitive sense of smell um, and so yeah I think the classic one that you would see is the dung beetle rolling the ball of dung um, and I think some species will lay their their eggs in the dung and actually something I, I found was that in Egyptian culture scarab beetles and, and dung beetles were quite revered but one thing that they thought was that there was only males so they thought they laid their sperm in the dung and then the new beetles would grow from that so they didn't think there was any female beetles but yeah there's a lot of association with beetles in particularly in ancient egyptian culture with renewal and like rebirth and growth and things cool i really love the scarabs i don't know much about the beetles as we've as we've already seen but the scarab beetles are a really cool group, and 
dung beetles in particular have there's not there's even more than the strangeness about you know that is apparent in the name some researchers in 2009 were investigating how they managed to see there's a species that is nocturnal and they uh they roll their dung in a straight line like through the whole night that they are moving their dung around they like don't deviate from the straight line and the researchers were thinking how do they navigate um without like the sun, which is how most animals do straight line navigation. Um, and it turns out that they use the Milky Way to navigate. Uh, they use variation in brightness of the Milky Way and then the dark sky around it to keep their steady line. And the way that they found this out is by taking beetles in the African savanna and putting them in a planetarium in Johannesburg. And they turned on and off different parts of the night sky to see if they could still maintain a straight line. And they were still able to do it with just the Milky Way, with no other star main star points. Wow. So Wait, where did you say the planetarium was? Johannesburg. Ah, okay. Cool. Um, so you're telling me they're using, like, visual cues from across the universe? Yes. Fair. Do you know, as well, the thing that blows my mind with, like, dung beetles is, like, one, the dung is often bigger than them. They have such a crucial role in sort of clearing the savannah, as you said, Naomi. But often you see those videos of them pushing the dung, and we think that's, like, a short distance. But in reality, they'll quite often push them, like, a really long way. Like, for them, it's not just, like, a short sprint. It's, like, a long and winding road back to their den. (laughs) But when you're looking for beetles, you'll find them here, there, and everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... Yeah, but uh, dung beetles, really cool for a lot of reasons. I think they also do some research on their immune systems as well, because obviously they, you know, eat and live in dung. So I think they, they, <laughs> they, they use their, they look at their kind of immune systems to, to see if they can have any applications in, in medicine as well, I think. The diversity of beetles sort of made this research hard because yeah like there are things like dung beetles and scale beetles which stand out but like the number of beetles is amazing like we haven't touched on weevils yet which are the most diverse group of the most diverse animals and weevils are probably the most easy to recognize of the beetles they've got that long snout Mm. do you know what i mean so those are the weevils oh interestingly so when you see a long snout on an insect what would you presume it was for getting hard to reach food nary yeah, or maybe display, like a, a mating display. Well, actually, you're right, Nick, but you didn't really, and I suppose they are related to mating as well. But a lot of people assume that they'd be like a hibiscus, like a sucking organ. Yeah, but the the reality is it's not used for sucking. It actually has chewing parts. Oh. Um, but they use it, as you said, to get into difficult-to-reach places, usually in wood, uh, to get inside. But I wanted to talk about one specific weevil, which is the Ostroplatypus incompertus. So this is a part of the ambrosia beetles. And the ambrosia beetles are an amazing group. So they are the first farmers that ever appeared on planet Earth. They have been farming on planet Earth for 90 million years. I know, it's a long time. It's quite an amazing feat for them. They farm fungi. So what they do is they grow their fungi and they they will eat off that. And what makes uh, this this species of Ostroplatypus so amazing is it's eusocial, which is really, really strange for insects that aren't 
part of the Hymenoptera or the termite families. Uh, but this is a beetle which is eusocial and lives in big groups. There's been a lot of studies into them. Individuals can live like many years, sometimes decades. But they, yeah, they will live in big sort of nests that work together. And they're all very, very closely related, as you would find in other eusocial animals. But there are, there are some which are born in certain parts of the nest which can never, ever leave. They will just stay in that tiny portion of the nest. And that's their role. Wow. Wow, I didn't realize beetles had social groups in that way. Yeah, it's super rare for other insects outside of, like I said, uh, wasps, ants. Ants are the main one, and termites. But... Um, yeah, that these beetles do do it, which makes them really, really stand out. And this farming appears to have helped. The the ambrosia fungus, which is what the ambrosia beetles farm, uh, helps sustain such large numbers. Wow. Cool. Cool. She, just while you're talking about weevils, one cool weevil that I saw was the giraffe weevil. Would recommend oh. giving this a Google. Crazy looking. This is um, this was one of the things that I noticed in this this week's research is that there are so many kinds of beetles I never imagined could have existed and the giraffe weevil was like the key one of that so do yeah. have a Google for that Absolutely. is it the one from Madagascar it is yes yeah. yeah it has as you might expect an exceptionally long neck good <laughs> looking um but yeah an- another really something I actually wasn't I had a vague suspicion in my mind. I was like, I was like, what are fireflies? And I was like, are they beetles? So I Googled it and they're beetles. Uh, not on fire, not flies. Nope. Um, so they produce light and this is called bioluminescence. Um, so the way that they produce light is probably the best known example of bioluminescence that we, we know of. Um, so oxygen combines with calcium, adenosine triphosphate, ATP and the chemical luciferin in the presence of luciferase, which is a bioluminescent enzyme. And then light is produced. Um, so this is a cold light, unlike, say, a light bulb or our sources of light. There's no energy lost to heat. Something that research has found is that nitric oxide is very important because sometimes in these displays, they, they flash their light, so they turn it on and off. And the way that they can control this is using nitric oxide gas. So basically, the light is off when there is no nitric oxide being produced. Um, in this situation, the oxygen um, enters the light organ, but it's bound to the mitochondria, so it's not free for this reaction. But when nitric oxide is present, it will bind to the mitochondria instead of the oxygen. And so then the oxygen can be used in this reaction. But the nitric oxide breaks down very quickly, so then the oxygen will go back and bind to the mitochondria. Um, so in this way, it can be turned on and off quite quickly um, in this sort of pattern. And there's a couple of different reasons why they use light. So there's actually a fireflies. Uh, they're also called lightning bugs, not bugs, not lightning. But anyway, they are glow worms. Again, neither <laughs> of those two things. But um, <laughs> anyway, so they I can be used in, in larvae. I will concede that they do glow. Yes. Yeah, they they, yeah, that's true. They go. We'll give them that. <laughs> so out of, like, what, the six descriptive words that they have, one of them is correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, so some of them, the larvae is the one that glows, um, and in others it's the adult. So for the larvae, it's often used as defense, sort of a to 
showcase their distaste that they often have steroids as a mean of defense. Uh, but in adults, it's mostly used as mating. Um, so they flash um, and they show their and they attract mates with their flashes of light. And I think differences in the way the males flash and the different tempos and durations of the light is how it helps the females choose the most suitable male. In other species, though, they don't use lights. They actually use pheromones instead. And I think that pheromones is probably an ancestral condition and that lights developed uh, within the group. Um, but there's actually some are, are, are kind of mimics of this mating um, this mating procedure. And they're called the femme fatale beetles <laughs> of North America. So they use the signal to predate other fireflies into thinking that they're a suitable female, but instead they eat them. So, yeah. Rough. But this so, group is called lamp, Lampridae, which I think is fun because lamp is a word. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Thanks, yeah. Um, um, so they aren't in Europe, are they? Um, they are. They are oh, in Europe. Really? Uh, there is one, some in the UK, actually. And what? the most common one in the UK, yeah. I didn't realize this. Uh, the most common species of glowworm found in the UK is Lampris noctiluca, and the female is the one that is most easily noticed. But yeah. Uh, well, I think that brings us to the end of our theme today on beetles. If you liked the things we said today, then tune in next week. Right, we'll be talking about autumn. We're recording this episode today on the equinox. And so by the time you hear this, it'll be solidly into autumn. I think we have some cool stuff to talk about, and I'm going to try to fight really hard the whole episode to not say fall. So you have that to look forward to. Uh, that brings us to the end of our episode, so that's goodbye from Nick. Hello. Goodbye. That's goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. And that's a goodbye from me to you. Goodbye. I am the walrus. Uh, it was kind of nice doing it was Beatles with you. I never get to talk about Beatles, and, you know, it's always nice to, you know, talk about something I love with a little help from my friends. Glad we could help you with that, Nick. Wait, hold on. Yeah, I'm glad we could help you with that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure that was on the album. Guys, Great. I think we gotta get back to being serious about this. Yeah. We should come together and finish this podcast. <laughs> well, then we can say goodbye or goodnight, depending on what time zone you're in. Mm. Are you just looking at Beatles songs now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs>